This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the epic sounds of one of the great American movie soundtracks of all time, one of the great movies of all time, The Godfather. And on this day in history in 1972, The Godfather was released. It broke box office records, it won huge critical acclaim, and helped revive the ailing Hollywood studio system. The movie launched the career of director Francis Ford Coppola and relaunched the flagging flagging career of screen icon Marlon Brando, starring as the aging, brooding Mafia Don. The Godfather is the saga of an American family. In essence, it is the story of America. Here's Al Pacino on The Godfather's opening scene. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her never to dishonor her family. Uh, A few months ago, for the first time, I had watched The Godfather. And there's this beautifully shot scene where the guy comes to The Godfather and asks him to help him. And starts relating the story of how his daughter was abused. Do what I beg you to do. What was that? I thought, this is what made the movie. Everyone can relate to that. The universe can relate to that. Here's a guy got really tragic problems, his daughter being raped and beaten. He goes to the Godfather because nobody else will help him. We've known each other many years, but this is the first time you ever came to me for counsel for help. Now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. You don't ask with respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Everybody feels that thing of I've only had some place I can go to get justice, to get taken care of, to be helped. Be my friend. Godfather. It's everybody's dream to have the father, the Godfather. Call it a Godfather who comes and helps you with your issues. But the making of this gangster classic, considered by many to be the greatest film ever made, was almost as brutal as the movie itself. A genuine mafia godfather vowed to stop the movie by any means necessary. Left with no choice, Hollywood struck an historic deal with the mob itself. Godfathers have been part of the popular culture now. It was more than just a movie. It changed the way pictures looked. It changed the way pictures were cast. It was a seminal moment. To this day, I don't know that anybody else has ever achieved it. Without the mob being involved in making The Godfather, there'd be no Godfather. This is the untold story of how the greatest film in American history was made. The Godfather is the story of the Corleone family, Michael, the idealistic and youngest son of Don Vito Corleone, the head of the most powerful mafia family in New York, who returns home as a war hero and is determined to live his own life. But tragic circumstances suck him into his family's violent world. This story is the brainchild of author Mario Puzo. In the mid-1960s, Puzo was broke, reeling from the failure of his first two novels. Here's the Godfather producer Al Ruddy and his executive assistant, Betty McCart. It's a man who never had too much success in his life. He wrote a book called The Fortunate Pilgrim. 
It's a masterpiece. We won a book club award. It was really a, a work of art, a real piece of literature. And uh, uh, three people read it in the whole world, you know. Everyone who had read the book said, Mario, there's one character in that book you should expand and do another book on. And that was this dawn in the book. Puzo's The Fortunate Pilgrim featured a cameo appearance from an aging mafia don. Puzo realized this character could be the basis for the bestseller he so desperately needed, and the timing couldn't have been better. Real-life godfathers such as Carlo Gambino had been thrust into the spotlight after a series of high-profile FBI investigations. Puzo decided to exploit the public's newfound appetite for the mob, but he knew nothing about the mob, so he headed to Vegas, which by the late 1960s had become the Mafia Playground. He met with pit bosses at the Sands and other hotels who would share stories on the inner workings of the mob. Puzo wove these stories into his 1969 novel, The Godfather, his fifth. It became an instant bestseller. In fact, it was the fastest-selling novel in history, confirming the public's appetite for all things mafia. Despite the book's global success, Paramount Pictures, who had bought the film rights for $80,000, vowed they would never make The Godfather into a movie. Like the other Hollywood studios, it was reeling from the loss of cinema audience to television. But in that year, Puzo's book sold millions of copies. Paramount knew they had to capitalize on The Godfather, but wanted to minimize their risks. So they issued a tiny $2.5 million budget for the picture and began assembling a production staff. Loitering on the back lot was Al Ruddy, an up-and-coming young producer with a reputation for not going over budget. With the budget in safe hands, Ruddy and Paramount then approached a young director named Francis Ford Coppola. Coppola was considered an outsider, a maverick, with a strong independent spirit. Paramount originally had other directors in mind for The Godfather, but Elia Kazan, Arthur Penn, Richard Brooks, and Costas Gravis all turned the job down. Coppola needed the job because he was broke. Paramount needed Coppola because he was cheap with encouragement from his young assistant, a guy named George Lucas. Coppola signed on. In 1970, the ailing Paramount Pictures put The Godfather into production on a budget under $6 million, which was a pittance considering most of their films were given around $25 million budgets. As a cost-cutting measure, Paramount asked Coppola to modernize his 1940 script so the action would take place in 1972. They also wanted to shoot the movie in Kansas City instead of Coppola's preferred budget-busting New York City. The setting for the film was going to be translated to the early 1970s, and they were going to shoot it either on studio sets, which would have been terrible, or in a city other than New York, because shooting in New York is always more expensive and more problematic than shooting anywhere else. Francis Coppola absolutely wanted to shoot the movie in New York City, and Al Ruddy wanted to shoot it there too. There was no question it would be better shooting it there than elsewhere. There's no place else that you could get that kind of authenticity. And when we come back, more on this epic story, the the anniversary of the day The Godfather was released nationally. This is Our American Stories. More on this epic story after these messages.
This is Our American Stories for the hour, the story of the making of The Godfather. And there are not many better stories about art and commerce and the intersection of the two than this story behind the making of this epic American picture. And it's my favorite. And not many people don't think it's one of the greats ever made. And on this day in history, in 1972, The Godfather was released. And as always, are this days in histories are brought to us from the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the finer things in life, the arts, philosophy, and so much more. And by the way, there is so much philosophy in this movie. We'll get to that later. In fact, a conversation I had with Dr. Larry Arn and some students about The Godfather may have been one of the most interesting I ever had in my life at Hillsdale College. Dr. Arn's take on this movie was fascinating. Back to the story, Paramount finally relented and that is on the decisions Coppola wanted to make, particularly about filming this in New York. And by the way, not in the 1970s. Coppola won the day. It was the 1940s. It had to be the 1940s. That's when the movie and the book both take place. So you wanted to stick with accuracy, not stick to cheaper budgets. But news that Paramount intended to shoot a mafia film in New York City enraged New York's mob-supported organization, the Italian-American Civil Rights League. The League's mission was to challenge the stereotypes, especially from movies and TV, that all Italians were involved in organized crime. When The Godfather was announced, the Civil Rights League totally realized that this would never be positive for the Italian-Americans. They claimed there was no mafia, that there was no Casa Nostra, and they didn't want us to make a movie about mafia or Casa Nostra. The mafia is in Italy. How many? I don't know. They're in Italy. They're not here. Well, they were here. And the league's charismatic and usually powerful frontman was Joseph Colombo himself. Joseph was the boss of the Colombo crime family, one of the five families of the Cosa Nostra that had a stranglehold over the streets of New York. Here was a man who was undoubtedly the head of a major mafia organization and at the same time claimed he was fighting for Italian-American civil rights. As far as they were concerned, he was a good-natured, pleasant person who deeply believed in the rights of Italian-Americans. The fact that he was also being investigated on about 12 federal charges for larceny, embezzlement, gambling, and corruption uh, probably sort of slipped through the cracks. Joseph Colombo decided to turn the League's discontent into direct action against the Godfather. Here is one of the League's members protesting, followed by Joseph Colombo himself. We are righteous. We represent good. We are good, we do good, and we're going to force you to do good. The League is under God's eyes, and as long as it does good things, the League will get stronger and stronger. And those who go against the League will feel his sting. A campaign of violence and intimidation began against the Godfather. Here's famed mob buster, NYPD's chief rackets investigator, Joe Coffey. The threats against Paramount were coming from the League and the mob, which is one entity. There was no distinguishing one from the other at that time because the mob totally took over the movement. The first person targeted was the Godfather's producer, Al Ruddy, who began receiving phone calls. They were threatening his life, and that's very scary. I mean, they would make veiled threats about his family and everything else. And yeah, he was really, he was very nervous about the whole thing. I was notified by some people in the LAPD. And I'm sure, coming from Washington, but basically locally, 
that I was being trailed. I was being followed every place I went in Los Angeles. Al, who's in himself a great Italian war hero, decided that he would trade cars with me. One night, my secretary, Betty McGarr, took my doogie out to her house. And in the middle of the night, someone blew out all the windows to the car and left a note where the windshield had been, saying that they didn't want the picture made. So we were getting subtle messages. Bob Evans, the head of production for Paramount, was threatened, as was his wife, Allie McGraw. Bob got a call from the league saying they didn't want to see the movie made, and if it was made, this would be a lot of problems. So Bob said, I'm not producing it. Al Ruddy is. And Joe said, when we kill a snake, we chop its head off first. In defiance of this intimidation campaign, Al Ruddy and the Godfather crew moved right into the heartland of the New York City Mafia, Little Italy itself. Here again is New York City mob buster Joe Coffey on how the mafia controlled the streets of New York. The Italian mafia went into Italian grocery stores and meat stores and bars and catering establishments and forced them to put their signs in their window. And the people who put those in their windows would have to pay the mob for the privilege of putting those things in their windows. So it was a total intimidation factor, not only of the people who made the Godfather, but also of the Italian-American community in New York City and the surrounding area. Terrified of reprisals, the residents and small business owners had no choice but to turn away the production team who were scouting for filming locations. Director Francis Ford Coppola got the same message. Francis, without any permission, came to Mulberry Street to do a test. And Saeed just built this cinemobile. He had like a main four in equipment. They parked it on the street and went into Umberto's to have lunch. And when they came out, the truck was gone. <laughs> they were just showing them that, you know, you're not coming here. And he was just doing test shots. It also must be said that inside of that stolen truck, there was over a million dollars worth of filming equipment. More worryingly, Mafia boss Colombo held an ace card that could shut down the production for good. The Mafia, who owned the labor unions, could organize pickets, boycotts, and all-out strikes within hours. If Colombo turned the unions against Paramount, they wouldn't be able to shoot a single frame. Nothing was going to move forward past a certain point unless we sat down with the league or the people who were really obstacles to us making this movie. It became very apparent. They knew they had to cooperate. They knew they needed a sympathetic mafia to shoot that film, especially in New York. Left with no choice, producer Al Ruddy had to meet face-to-face with the Mafia Don who was stopping the Godfather in its tracks. Al goes to a meeting at the Park Sheraton Hotel thinking it's going to be a small group, and what it winds up being is 600 members in a giant ballroom all ready to take him apart. At that meeting, in front of 600 people, Al told them the truth, which was that the movie wasn't going to stereotype all Italian-Americans and that they were corrupt Irish people and corrupt Jewish people and, you know, corrupt wasps in the movie, too. I said, this is not going to be one of those cliché Italian, let's get the Italian gangsters in America, because then it's not going to have the broad appeal that worked for the book. To confirm Al Ruddy's claims... In March of 1971, Joseph Colombo himself demanded a secret meeting to read the Godfather's script. You can't make this stuff up, folks. 
Here's Ruddy again. Down the hallway come Joe, Colombo, and two guys. Lock the door. Joe sits opposite me. Butter sits on the couch. Caesar's on the window. I say, you are the only person, Joe, who's going to look at this whole script. No one has seen it. I give him the 155 pay script. He puts his glasses on. He asked me, like, what does fade in mean? A couple of terms he didn't quite understand. And I realized, looking at him, there was no way, no way, he's going to sit there with 155 pages. So he takes, oh, God, these glasses. I can't read the glass. He throws it. He's you read about it. Guy jumps off. Me? Give it to season. He throws it the other way. Now they're passing the script around like it's a hand grenade with the pin pulled out, right? <laughs> Finally, Joe takes the script and smashes it on my desk. He says, wait a second. Do we trust this guy? Yeah, we all like him. <laughs> I made a deal with him right there. That's how the deal was made. Al Ruddy made the deal of his life. Al Ruddy is probably should have been a godfather. If he wasn't Jewish, he'd be a great godfather. What Al Ruddy made the deal was very simple. simple. He said, we'll take out any words you don't want. You don't want mafia? We'll take it out. And so he did. And by the way, it didn't change anything. And by the way, I've never understood why that would be a concession. Because in any good script, the word mafia wouldn't be mentioned. Mafiosa don't use the word mafia. Other people use it. They don't use the word. And the script really wasn't altered. He, he made concessions he didn't actually need to make. But what he provided, the godfather himself, was reassurance. Do you trust this guy? And they did. And by the way, this was not caricature, and it was not stereotype. And there were corrupt Jews, corrupt Irish cops. It was all there. It was about the nature of sin itself, and the nature of tribalism, and gangs, and warfare, and the violation of the rule of law, and about what happens when tribes go at each other. And we're going to talk more about that and more. An hour on The Godfather, on this day in history... In 1972, this great movie was released. our American stories and for the hour the story of the making of the Godfather which was released nationally on this day in history in 1972 this story itself could be a movie and when we left off there was a negotiation between Al Ruddy producer of the Godfather and the Godfather himself one of the chiefs of one of the big families in New York Joe Colombo Colombo immediately agreed to Ruddy's offer, the offer we learned about in the last segment. The irony was, if he had read the script, he would have realized that the word mafia only ever appeared in the script one time. There was only one place, one place where the word was used. It said, no guinea goomba wop greaseball mafias are coming out of the woodwork to get Johnny Fontaine that job. So, of course, no mafia. 
So now the movies are only kidding going by wild grease balls are coming out of the woodwork to get Johnny Fontaine that job. I don't care how many Dago Guinea Wap grease ball goombas come out of the woodwork. I'm German Irish. So they left all the other derogatory words in and just took out Mafia and they were happy. That was the only mention in the whole script of Mafia. I couldn't make an issue of it to let them think they hadn't gotten anything until the movie was finished. They allowed them to use these premises, apartments, bars, restaurants, but they had to pay for it and the mob got the money. They gave a pittance to the owner of the establishment, but the mob got most of the money. So the rules, so to speak, were made by the mob. They encouraged the producers of The Godfather to use premises like this that they controlled. When Paramount agreed to drop the word mafia from the Godfather script, just another example of how influential the mafia was in America. Bending under the pressure of the mafia sends a message, at least to somebody like me, who knows the deal, that uh, they're cowards, which they are. Once the deal was made with the league, but never a problem after that. Finally, after a year of adversity, Coppola began to shoot The Godfather on the streets of New York City. But when the first scenes of The Godfather began to arrive back in Hollywood, the Paramount executives thought Coppola was making their investment look like an art film. And his insistence that an unknown actor named Al Pacino play the lead role of Michael Corleone further antagonized the studio heads. They didn't want Al Pacino. Al Pacino was a midget. He's very short. And he was very inexperienced in their opinion. And having a short, unknown, low-key actor appearing in the pivotal role in a major motion picture was not what Bob Evans wanted. Al Pacino made just 35000 for starring in the film. Coppola's outsider approach to filmmaking was evident in his casting choices. He preferred actors who were either unknown, unlikely, or in the case of Marlon Brando, unpopular with the Hollywood studios. There are a host of almost cast stories, but perhaps the biggest is that Orson Welles lobbied to get the part of Don Vito Corleone, offering to lose a good deal of weight in order to get that role. Coppola, a huge Welles fan, had to turn him down because his mind was set on Brando. Here's Coppola with the behind-the-scenes story of Marlon Brando's casting. The Godfather casting, especially for the character of Vito Corleone, was difficult because he was meant to be an older, really Italian-American person because the story was set in New York. And it's hard to find a 60-year-old newcomer who hasn't already distinguished himself. And so when we looked at the various actors who could play the part, there, there really weren't any that we felt had the charisma or the mystery that could do it. So I concluded, who are the two greatest actors in the world, or the three greatest actors in the world, who are vaguely the age to, to play it? And we concluded, well, there was Laurence Olivier, and there was Marlon Brando. Laurence Olivier was British, with a British accent, and was actually quite ill. Marlon Brando was only 47, but Marlon Brando had another problem. Hey, was um, considered very troublesome, and his last few pictures had been big flops. Uh, it was a film called Quemada. It had done terribly, and the executive said, if you put Marlon Brando in The Godfather, it would be, it would be do less business than if you put a totally nobody in it. 
the president of Paramount told me in these words, he says, Francis, as president of Paramount Pictures, I am telling you that Marlon Brando will not be in this movie. Well, at that point, I just, I remember I just fell off the chair and lay on the rug and say, well, if I can't even pursue the few ideas I have, you know, what, what do you expect of me? So they said, all right, we'll, we'll give you three conditions for Brando to be in the picture. Number one, he must do a screen test. Number two, he must put up a billion dollar bond that none of his behavior problems will cause uh, delays on the production and number three he must do the film for nothing <laughs> so I listened to these three conditions and I said I said okay <laughs> because now they had said maybe Marlon Brando could be in the picture if I met these three conditions how stupid they may be I called up the house uh, that I was given to to speak to Marlon Brando and I didn't know him and I was very very respectful of him of course because of his great great past work and I said basically Mr. Brando this character is an Italian maybe you'd like to experiment a little to see if you can play yeah you're right maybe maybe we can uh, see how I would do it he didn't know he was doing a screen test he just was experimenting I said we have to be like ninjas we have to go to Mr. Brando's house don't make any noise and we'll just sort of photograph him experimenting to be an Italian so we went, we arrived very early in the morning and no one said a word. I had brought little dishes of Italian cheese, little Italian cigars, little pepperoncini or little sausages, little things I just put around in, in his house. Didn't say a word about it. And he came out, he had long blonde hair. He was very, you know, he was, as I said, only 47. He was quite a handsome young man. And as he came out, he, in a beautiful Japanese robe, I remember, he came out and he took his long hair and he kind of put it up behind his head and pinned it in and he got some shoe polish and he started to make it black and kind of do that. And then he put a white shirt on and I remember he took the white shirt and he was taking his collar, interesting about little seeds of a character, and he started to bend the end of the collar and he said, oh, those Italian guys, the collar is always bent. And and he even said, oh, maybe his voice should be very hoarse because he shot in the story in the throat. <laughs> he was talking like this. <laughs> like that, not saying anything. And meanwhile, we were photographing this. So he reached down and took a little of the cheese and nibbled and he took the little cigar and he didn't light it, but he kept going. <laughs> he even took some Kleenex and he put it into his mouth and said, uh, you know, and he, he said, those guys look like bulldogs. And it was a miracle because the character was growing out of this. Indeed. And in fact, we're going to learn more about this screen, screen test, this screen test that Brando didn't know was a screen test. When we come back for the hour, the story of the Godfather, the making of the Godfather on this day in history in 1972, this movie was released. It broke box office records, won huge critical acclaim. It helped revive the ailing Hollywood studio system. But as you're listening to it, my goodness, the struggles, the difficulties of getting this movie made, getting it cast, just getting past the mob is a story enough. When we come back, 
the story of the making of The Godfather, the final scene in this hour-long tribute to Francis Ford Coppola's masterpiece. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the final chapter of this remarkable story, How the Godfather Came to Be. It was released on this day in history in 1972. We just learned that in the end, Francis Ford Coppola had to fight for almost everything in this movie. Fights that you just almost couldn't describe. They were constant. Well, he tricked Marlon Brando into testing for a part that Marlon Brando would have never tested for. He was Marlon Brando, for goodness sake. Here's Coppola on the aftermath of this secret screen test. I took this tape, and I didn't know what to do with it. So rather than show it to the president of Paramount Pictures, I decided to go to New York and and show it to the chairman and the owner of Paramount, who was named Charlie Bluthorn, who was an interesting person. You should read about him. And he had a company called Gulf and Western. It was the first conglomerate, and one of the companies he owned was Paramount. I'm going to make him an offer, Gamble, for you. So I went to his office in New York, and I set up this tape in a conference room right outside uh, where Mr. Bluthorn's office was, and I knocked on the door. Charlie Bluthorn comes out, and he recognized me. Oh, Francis, what can I do? I said, well, look at this. And I turned on the tape recorder, and there is Marlon Brando with this long blonde hair rolling it up. And Charlie Bluthorn said, no, no, absolutely not. Marlon Brando, ah. And as he watched and saw this transformation, he said, that's incredible. That's incredible. And as at that moment, I knew that I had Brando in the part, And, of course, they didn't make him do a bond for his behavior, and they didn't pay him very much. But, in fact, uh, he got the part, and, of course, Brando, uh, uh, to this day, is thought of for that role. I want you to go tonight. I want you to talk to this movie, Big Shot, and settle this business with Johnny. Now, if there's nothing else, I'd like to go to my daughter's wedding. And, indeed, one of the critical choices that Coppola made in one of the Many fights he fought for in casting and in every other respect. And boy, did this one pay off. Meanwhile, after attempts at blocking the film for so long, the mafia were becoming seduced by Hollywood. To the mob, since Hollywood were making a film about them, it was only natural that they should be given starring roles. At the Corleone compound in Staten Island, the mafia and Hollywood finally merged during the filming of the seminal wedding scene. And there was one major role that had yet to be cast that of Luca Brasi, the Godfather's personal hitman. That's when Lenny Montana, a former professional wrestler turned Columbo Mafia member, 
walked on the Godfather's set. Tall and heavily built, Montana's talents were mostly as a mafia enforcer and arsonist. Montana would tie a tampon to the tail of a mouse, dip it in kerosene, light it, and let the mouse run through a building. Or he would put a candle in front of a cuckoo clock so that when the clock's bird would pop out, the candle would be knocked over and start a fire. Eventually, Montana ended up doing time in Rikers Island. Producer Ruddy knew he was perfect for this role. One day we looked around, and here was Lenny Montana. So I went over and I met Lenny, and I brought him over to Francis. He was perfect. He was of the boys, and he was a major player. Lenny Montana was a hitman and a bodyguard for one of the big families. He wanted to change his career <laughs> and become an actor. Montana's first scene with Marlon Brando, the greatest actor of his generation. Well, the mafia man was so nervous that he couldn't muster a good take for the scene that takes place in the Godfather's study on the day of his daughter's wedding, despite a full day of shooting. Coppola didn't have time to reshoot the scene, so he added a new scene of Montana painfully rehearsing his lines before his meeting with the Godfather. But the rehearsal scene is not acting. Lenny never acted before. <laughs> so Francis said, well, just go sit down and run your lines and we'll shoot you. Can we? So you get used to the camera. So the marvelous moment you see on the side said, Don Corleone, I'm honored to let it to be the, the, I hope the male, the firstborn is a male. That was his rehearsal. So he was talking to himself and talking to himself, this big man so afraid, and Francis shot that and realized, gee, that's perfect, because he was really just doing his lines. Don Carlo, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your home on the wedding day of your daughter. And may that first child be a masculine child. Lenny was a very powerful man, but on the set, these guys who had an acting role were also scared and so nervous. I mean, it's like acting was more frightening than doing whatever they did in the past. Don Colleone, I am honored and grateful that you have invited me to your daughter's wedding. On the day of your daughter's wedding. And I hope that their first child be a masculine child. I pledge my ever-ending loyalty for your daughter's bridal purse. Thank you, my most valued friend. Don Calion, I'm going to leave you now because I know you are busy. Thank you. For movie-going audiences in the 1970s, the world they were living in was being threatened by drastic social change. Institutions like marriage and family were targets of the counterculture. And the Godfather's focus on the strong, tight-knit bond between Don Vito Corleone and his mobster family was, by contrast, both traditional and reassuring. You spend time with your family? Sure I do. Good. Because a man that doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. The Godfather is this perfect reflection of its time period in a lot of ways. Perhaps for members of the audience, they were comforted by the fact that here you have very traditional, very clearly defined male roles and female roles. In The Godfather, members of the Corleone crime family are not depicted as one-dimensional criminals, but as multi-layered men with family values whose chosen business is crime. 
What made it hold up was the values that Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, held for his children and his family. As twisted as they were in his mind, everything he did was for them. We see ourselves in their family rituals. You're invited to their weddings. You're invited to their baptisms. You eat spaghetti in their kitchens. You start out with a little bit of oil, and you fry some garlic. Then you throw in some tomatoes, some tomato paste. You fry it. You make sure it doesn't stick. Imagine a film that had these gangsters feeding children and cooking. This was unheard of. A little bit of wine. It put you right in the kitchen, right in the living room. These people were us. They were us, except that they would walk out the door and then kill somebody. And so you got both close to them personally and then saw and witnessed them do terrible things to other families and, in the end, to themselves. Before this movie premiered in public, the Paramount executives got a screening. They weren't impressed. Here's Peter Bart, the former VP of production at Paramount. People of Paramount saw it and unanimously felt it was too slow and too talky and at 2 hours and 20 minutes would not really be a success commercially. Then on March 24th, 1972, after years of negotiations, the fate of The Godfather rested in the hands of the public. It was an amazing happy time when the movie came out. We used to drive around and watch the, the cues of the people to, because it was such a thrill to us to see so many people going. This was truly a sensation, the first major picture of the 1970s to really hit at the box office. It's the first movie to ever be Gone with the Wind. You know, Gone with the Wind was the box office champ till The Godfather opened. While Paramount celebrated at their premiere, the mafiosi were furious. They had been snubbed. Joseph Colombo's son, Anthony, called Al Ruddy demanding an explanation. Where are our tickets to the premiere? Well, the last thing in the world we wanted was those people at our premiere. He said, well, don't you think that's unfair? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, when Hollywood does a movie about the Army, the generals are the guests of honor. In a movie about the Navy, the admirals are sitting up front. You think we'd be the guests of honor in this thing except those we can't see the movie? They were really getting ugly about the whole thing. So we decided to give them their very own premiere. When it was over, the projectionist called me. He said, I've been a projectionist for 25 years. Nobody ever gave me a $1,000 tip. That's how much they love the movie, literally. When the movie came out, the FBI immediately began to notice in its surveillance of real mob figures that the movie was having an influence on the way the real mob act. They started kissing hands, kissing rings, calling each other godfather, treating themselves in a more genteel way. When we come in with the guns out and the whole routine, they got the tape of the godfather in the television VCR, watching it. They loved it. The score of the mafia movie, The Godfathers, became the mob's national anthem. The Godfather, the film the mob tried in every way to destroy, to block, was now adopted by the Mafia. It was the ultimate irony. The Mafia believed that the Godfather legitimized them. It was a legacy Coppola never intended. The film was the highest-grossing film of 1972 and was, for a time, the highest-grossing film ever made. Jaws eclipsed that. It won the Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Adapted Screenplay for Puzo and Coppola. 
Its seven other Oscar nominations included Al Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall for Best Supporting Actor, and Coppola for Best Director. It was followed by sequels The Godfather Part Two and The Godfather Part Three. On this day in history, The Godfather went national. This is Our American Stories. As always, are this days in histories brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And this is Our American Stories. And our This Day in History is about a man that's been vilified by some described as a robber baron as worse. But today you'll get the record straight. The life of a man you know. You know his name. But here's the other side of the story. It was the 1800s. And in just 35 short years, America had grown into one of the most powerful countries on the planet, fueled by a group of visionaries who were building a better future. Cornelius Vanderbilt stopped at nothing to connect the nation via railroads. John D. Rockefeller lit homes from coast to coast, cheaply and safely with his standard oil. Under the strength of Andrew Carnegie's steel, cities expanded to the sky and bridges tightened the nation. And because of J.P. Morgan's business sense and vision, electricity began powering America. But what exactly did J.P. Morgan do? And why is it that we all know this man's name? You look at J.P. Morgan, the way he controlled the banking system. Basically, there's one man who just literally dominated the banking industry and essentially dominated financing in the country. J.P. was a banker, a very powerful one, who pulled the financial strings of wealthy men and was called on by presidents for what we now know as a bailout. He was a man who brought order to chaos, a man who made a fortune consolidating broken industries, buying out failing companies and returning them to profitability. Twice he was called on by American presidents to save the nation's economy. Both times he was criticized for wielding the power for the ability to do so. He was physically large with massive shoulders, piercing black eyes that seemed to look through people. He had an enormously disfigured purple nose because of a chronic skin condition called rosacea. As a result, all of his professional portraits were retouched. Photographer Edward Steichen said, meeting his blazing dark eyes was like confronting the headlights of a freight train bearing down on you. There is so much to say about this man, but as you are about to see, America wasn't discovered, it was built. In 1837, the new steam engine was beginning to transform America 
creating new and exciting opportunities. It was into this world of possibility that John Pierpont Morgan was born on April 17th in Hartford, Connecticut. The eldest son of Junius Spencer Morgan, the legendary founder of the world's first modern investment bank, and Juliet Pierpont Morgan, the daughter of a fiery preacher. Young Pierpont was greatly influenced by both his grandfathers. Every Sunday he accompanied his grandfather Joseph Morgan to the local Episcopal Church. Pierpont loved the services, especially when it came to singing the hymns. His other grandfather, the Reverend John Pierpont, was known for his passionate sermons on man's depravity and the love of Christ. Here's historian Ron Chernow. From his Pierpont grandfather, uh, uh, Morgan got a streak of uh, romanticism, a streak of uh, morality, and even a certain crusading streak that would be very important in his life. From the time he could count, Pierpont was taught that there was only one way to do business, the Morgan way. Simply put, invest wisely, avoid risk. Pierpont was a relatively solitary child who preferred reviewing his father's account books to outdoor sports. I will return tonight. See that these accounts balance by then. From a very young age, Junius had Pierpont working his books and imagining a bright future for himself. Go ahead, open it. Now pick it up. Feel the weight. You know what that is? That's what it feels like to hold a million dollars. Now, learn to earn it yourself. Pierpont's father noticed his son's abilities and over the years groomed him for a career in business. He raised his son Pierpont with a great deal of love but also a great deal of discipline. Junius Spencer Morgan expected that his son would follow in his footsteps and succeed in uh, the business world. But illness plagued Pierpont and often kept him out of school. From the time that he was a boy, he really had two personalities. One was this very jolly, animated, high-spirited, outgoing boy with tremendous energy and health. But then he would suddenly get these fainting spells, and that uh, was accompanied by a personality that was more that of a brooding loner. Forced by illness to spend time alone, Pierpont perfected the game of solitaire, a game he played to relax when he felt tense or nervous. After his first year at college, Pierpont's father decided it was time for his 20-year-old son to begin his career and arranged for him to be given a job as a clerk in a Wall Street banking firm. He worked hard, was orderly and absolutely methodical, and he could add numbers with lightning speed. Here's historian H.W. Brands. J.P. Morgan understood the game and at some point he realized that as successful as his father had been, he could become even more successful. At this time, Pierpont was introduced to a young lady named Amelia Sturgis, or Mimi, and they began dating. Soon Pierpont was sent to New Orleans, where he stumbled upon a business opportunity that he couldn't resist. A local sea captain was stuck with a shipload of coffee and no buyer. Immediate action was required or the coffee would spoil. Using the firm's money, Pierpont purchased the coffee and managed to turn a tidy little profit in the process. In New York, the partners at the bank weren't impressed. 
They were angry and thought the venture was risky. But Morgan believed that fortune smiles on those who act fast, and he believed his instincts about people would always make him a winner. He said the real risk was that he had misjudged the character of the captain and that the captain would have lied to him. And this is sort of the, the quintessential issue of Morgan, that he was able to look at people and immediately make a judgment of their character and of their integrity and one of his greatest strengths. And that is a real talent. When we come back, more of this exceptional life, a misunderstood life, a misrepresented life. The life of J.P. Morgan. He died on this day in history in 1913. And this is Our American Stories. This day in history brought to us, as always, by Hillsdale College. More about Hillsdale in the next segment. But let's continue with this remarkable story about a misunderstood and amazing American life story, the life of J.P. Morgan. He died on this day in history in 1913. Then, during the summer of 1861, three years after they had met, Mimi was diagnosed with tuberculosis, almost always fatal in the 19th century. Pierpont was devastated. Immediately, he took control of the situation. He proposed to Mimi, promising her that he'd help find a cure. He married her in the family house in New York. In fact, he had to carry her downstairs for the ceremony. Pierpont immediately took Mimi to Algiers for their honeymoon. He thought the tropical climate might save her. When Mimi's condition worsened, he brought in the best specialists to attend to her. But his efforts were in vain. Four months after their marriage, on February 17, 1862, Mimi died in Pierpont's arms. Here's an extraordinary outpouring of somebody trying to control life in some way. Uh, it was a terrible loss for him, and he failed. But he knew what he was getting into, oddly enough. He was daring, and almost he was daring death in some sort of dramatic way, and attempting to control it. The ordered, controlled life that Pierpont had made for himself was turned upside down. He returned to New York a changed man. The loss was so powerful that, in a way, it forced him to keep his genuinely emotional nature under tight control. Pierpont immersed himself in his business. He also remembered the comfort he received while attending church as a young boy. He joined St. George's Church in Manhattan and became an active member. As he continued to grieve for Mimi, the church provided a type of redemption that Pierpont didn't expect. It was there where he met the young, beautiful Fanny Tracy. She was at first put off by Pierpont's gruff demeanor, but soon she warmed to his affections. After a year-long courtship, Pierpont and Fanny were married at St. George's Church on May 31, 1865. They had three daughters and one son. Pierpont's prospects were bright. At 33, he had a beautiful family, a yacht, 
two homes, and was earning more than $75,000 a year, a huge amount in a time when $2,000 was a comfortable living. Then, like the discovery of fire and the invention of the wheel, Morgan envisioned electric light revolutionizing the world. Morgan hired Thomas Edison, a telegraph boy turned inventor, to install electricity at his Manhattan mansion on 219 Madison Avenue, the first electrically lit home in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, behold the miracle of modern science. The gas lamp is dead. Long live the electric light. <laughs> Every light you see is powered by electricity. Morgan's home became a lab for Edison's experiments. And when the time came to showcase electric light to a group of potential investors, Pierpont's father was not impressed. Well, father, what do you think? You disappoint me, Pierpont. I thought you knew better. This is the future. This is the stuff of carnivals and fairs. And you've been played for a fool. Though his father, Junius, saw electric light as a risky fad, Morgan invested everything in Edison. In the end, the fruits of Morgan's insight and investment gave birth to a company called General Electric. At this point, Morgan was running the biggest investment bank in America and consolidated both the electricity and railroad industries. He controlled 100,000 miles of railroad, half the country's mileage. But the American economy was fragile, and in 1893, the stock market crashed. The nation was thrown into a devastating depression. More than a hundred railroads declared bankruptcy, causing a domino effect that threatened other businesses and promised complete collapse of the economy. As had happened in the past, powerful men called upon Pierpont Morgan to bail them out. My railroad will like survive, we'll we win this answer. war. We need an Do you want to come to war? I've heard enough. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be an end to this war. The Morgan Bank will buy the West Shore and lease it to the Central. It'll also buy the Central stake in the South Pennsylvania in exchange for a share in other railroads. He excelled at taking warring parties who were destroying an industry and bringing peace on terms that was suitable to them, profitable to him, and which gave him leverage in the business itself. Anyone who knew anything about him realized that, like him or not, he got things done. Morgan reorganized the railroads by streamlining operations, and he was quickly able to reverse the downward spiral. But Pierpont wasn't finished. As a result of the Depression of 1893, the federal government's gold reserves had dropped to such an alarmingly low level that it looked as though the United States government would go broke. Fortunately, writes Phil Anschutz, Morgan considered the United States too big to fail. 
So Morgan devised a plan in which American and European bankers would invest gold directly in the government, saving it from collapse. But President Cleveland rejected Morgan's plan, and instead he backed the plan to raise the money by selling bonds directly to the public. But Morgan knew that the government didn't have time to sell bonds. Morgan quickly took a train to Washington, but was told that the president would not see him. Morgan's reply was swift. I have come down to Washington, D.C. to see the president, and I'm going to stay here until I see him. I think Pierpont Morgan certainly felt that he was the equal of the president of the United States. The next morning, word came from the White House that Morgan would be received. The president implemented Morgan's plan, and within days, the economy recovered. Here's Alan Greenspan. Morgan obviously was looking at the national interest in the context of his own, that is, saving the U.S. Treasury was an act of basic self-interest, but it was an act of nationalism. Morgan was hailed as a hero. He was praised for his patriotism and selflessness. But like all good deeds, Morgan's didn't go unpunished. Some accused him of manipulating the government and collecting a profit. People began to decide that Pierpont had too much power to be able to save the government of the United States. It's an extraordinary thing. And therefore, the only way that he could have done it is by having some sort of evil uh, capability. With the chaos, uncertainty, and personal demonization that often plagued Morgan's life, there was one source of stability, St. George's Church. The Reverend Rainsford said, Sometimes I found him kneeling in prayer, or reading, or singing a hymn without organ and alone. No one but myself knew that the great master of men and things was worshiping. But this great master of men and things had another side. Morgan was known for enormous appetites. He consumed enormous quantities of port, sherry, and wine with dinner. He had breakfasts so large they could have killed a horse. His appetites extended to other areas as well. He was often seen in the company of women other than his wife. Pierpont once made a very telling comment that uh, there are always two reasons why a man does something, the good reason and the real reason. And he was always very respectful of Fanny. He was very discreet about the various escapades that he went through. And it just keeps getting more interesting, the life of J.P. Morgan. You've heard the name, you've heard the firm, but now you know the story behind the story, and there's more. It gets even better. I mean, that one man can almost save a country by himself is pretty remarkable. When we come back, more of the life of J.P. Morgan on this day in history, brought to you, as always, by Hillsdale College.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And by the way, so many of the voices you're hearing in this piece are from some of the best people in the world of finance and storytelling in U.S. history. Ron Chernow wrote the book, The House of Morgan. You've heard from him several times. You heard from Alan Greenspan, former Federal Reserve chairman, who talked about the fact that Morgan operated not only in his self-interest, but in the national interest at the same time. He did both. And so now let's return to this remarkable life story. And as always, this Day in History segment is brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. On this day in history in 1913, J.P. Morgan died. Let's get back to the story. Morgan's passionate nature extended to his business enterprises. In 1901, he undertook the largest business transaction in modern history, the purchase of Carnegie Steel. Morgan knew he couldn't negotiate directly with Andrew Carnegie. He needed another way in. So he set up a meeting with Carnegie's right-hand man, Charles Schwab. How long have you worked for Carnegie? Over 15 years. I guess he'd hate it if you left. No one is indispensable. You've doubled profits at Carnegie Steel every year for the past five years. Times have been good. Carnegie's a very easy boss. What if he were your own boss? Of what? I am going to buy Carnegie Steel. And you are going to be president of the world's largest company. With all due respect, Mr. Morgan, Carnegie would kill your idea at birth. Carnegie would never sell. Everyone has their price. You just have to find out what it is. Carnegie Steel was the crown jewel in the Morgan Empire. When asked to name his price, Andrew Carnegie jotted down a figure on the back of an envelope. Carnegie wasn't going to do any price haggling with Morgan. Carnegie writes down $480 million on a piece of paper. It's the equivalent of $400 billion today, more than Gates and Buffett together. Carnegie dared J.P. Morgan to buy him out for an outrageous price, a sum that is higher than the entire budget of the U.S. federal government. Schwab returned to Morgan. I have a price. Have Carnegie come and meet me. Tell him the answer is yes. Morgan and Carnegie solidified the deal. I believe that that is the earliest in the day that I have ever drunk champagne. Congratulations, Carnegie. You're now the richest man in the world. Would you have said yes, Morgan, if I had asked for a hundred million more? Goodbye, Carnegie. The deal was closed without lawyers and without a written contract. The agreement gave Carnegie a personal net worth of over $310 billion in today's money. The largest private fortune the modern world has ever seen. 
With Carnegie Steel under his belt, Morgan formed the United States Steel Corporation in March of 1901. Stock was valued at $1,400,000,000. Morgan had created the world's first billion-dollar corporation, but his enormous power now brought public scrutiny. After his creation of U.S. Steel, he controlled somewhere between 60 and 70 percent of the American steel industry. He controlled a third of American railways at a time when railway stocks comprised 60 percent of all the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. Morgan had reached the pinnacle of his power, and it looked as if nothing could stop him. This is William Jennings Bryan at a recent Democrat rally. He's a prohibitionist and a devout Presbyterian. According to him, Darwin's theory of evolution is a pack of lies. He's an enemy of the gold standard and an enemy of big business. It is certain that he will win the Democratic nomination. What do you think? The Republican Party has a good candidate. No. We have to buy our own president. At the turn of the century, Morgan, along with John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie, joined forces in launching the business-friendly William McKinley into the position of President of the United States. But on September 6, 1901, McKinley was cut down by an assassin's bullet and died eight days later. Vice President Theodore Roosevelt was sworn in as the next president. Theodore Roosevelt, raise your right hand. Do you, Theodore Roosevelt, solemnly swear that you will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and to the best of your ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States? And thus I swear. Now, let's get started. Morgan soon confronted a man whose power equaled his own. He was an unknown entity, but to the extent that people in New York knew his record, they also knew that he was something of a loose cannon who had gone on record as criticizing businessmen. Roosevelt was determined to break up the big, powerful businesses called trusts, and he used Morgan's railroad company to set the example. Morgan demanded to see the president, so he stormed down from New York to Washington, went into the White House, and he said, I don't understand. He said, if we've got a problem, send your man to my man and they'll fix it up. And Roosevelt said, this is exactly the problem with Morgan. He acts as though I'm just a rival boss or something. And Morgan, who thought that he could manipulate Roosevelt, discovered that Roosevelt could not be manipulated at all. Morgan was not impressed. Pierpont Morgan resented Theodore Roosevelt, finally. And once when he heard that Roosevelt was going off to Africa on a safari, Morgan said, good, I hope the first lion that meets him does his duty. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. A showdown, Roosevelt versus J.P. Morgan. It doesn't get better than this, folks, and we don't sugarcoat our this days in history. We don't romanticize the people. Warts and all, we tell the story. 
Sometimes you actually get to hear the upside of the man and not just the downside. But Roosevelt, well, he was there to do one thing. And it was not just bust that railroad trust. He wanted to make a name for himself as a trust buster, period. And when we come back, we're going to get the rest of this story. Again, our This Day in History, we're featuring the life of J.P. Morgan. Our source material, Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz, a terrific chapter on J.P. Morgan. The House of Morgan, Ron Chernow's superb book, written in the 1980s, his first. And I don't know if it'll ever be topped, even though he's written Hamilton, the... The great book upon which the play is based, and of course, a stunning biography of George Washington. When we come back, more of the life of J.P. Morgan here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and you can catch all of our This Days in History at OurAmericanNetwork.com. Go up to the topic section, and right up there on the top is This Day in History. We got 77 of them there. This one will make 78. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our This Day in History segment is focused on one life for the hour. We don't do many hours on business people, but we're going to be doing more because just as George Washington deserves an hour, just as John Wooden does, just as Martin Luther King does, what we haven't done enough of in this country is celebrate our great business people who changed the country. And all of these guys are flawed characters, just like all of our founding fathers, just like Martin Luther King, just like Robert Plant that we did an hour. We don't brush up these people's lives. Why bother? They're not interesting if we do it. And great writers don't do it anyway, and that's what makes Chernow so brilliant. You're reading The Life of Alexander Hamilton, and it is messy. And boy, one minute you love him, and the next minute you're going, what a jerk. And then you come back to loving him, and then you come back to hating him, and you see this incredible talent. And you walk away saying, wow, what this country would have been like without these men. Like them, don't like them. What a story. And one of the books that we've been relying on here at Our American Stories is one called Out Where the West Begins by Phil Anschutz. And we've already done the life of Levi Strauss, the life of Adolph Coors. Again, you know these names, Coors Brewing, Levi Jeans. Who were the men who brought us these things that we use, drink, enjoy every day? And under finance, he spent some time on the life of J.P. Morgan. And, of course, we also have The House of Morgan by Ron Chernow, a couple of great documentaries that are out there, and then just searching for other source material. Greg, Alex, Jesse, John, the whole team here works to bring you these hours, and they just do a terrific, terrific job 
And all of this is brought to you, of course, by Hillsdale College. And now we return to the final installment of this life, this rich life, this complicated life, and this showdown between two giants, J.P. Morgan and Teddy Roosevelt. Morgan was prosecuted for breach of the Antitrust Act and lost in a 5-4 to decision at the U.S. Supreme Court in 1903. Then, in the fall of 1907, another panic hit Wall Street. One of America's largest trust companies had collapsed, sending shockwaves throughout the American economy. Immediate action was required, and President Roosevelt's advisors knew that there was only one man with the power to save the nation. Morgan's reach was very broad in American industry. He becomes the most respected, reliable, and trusted figure, not only because of the power and wealth that he wields, but just because of his character. The president who had prosecuted Morgan for having too much control was about to hand that control back to him. And Morgan had a plan. His answer was to get the larger trusts to invest money in their weaker competitors. This wasn't easy, but Morgan's power of persuasion was unmatched. Morgan was a very flamboyant and almost operatic figure, and like all great actors, he liked to have great stage sets for his big set pieces. He found that very often, in order to um, get a business deal, it helped to isolate people and also to set a deadline. He gathered the trust company presidents in his library. He cast a long, penetrating look at each man and launched into a plea for cooperation that at times sounded more like a command. Morgan then walked to the front door of the library, locked it, and retired to another room to play solitaire. The nation's most influential men were locked in Morgan's library and weren't allowed out until they came up with a solution. And he would be sitting at the desk and he would be flipping his cards. And uh, one of his lieutenants would come in and say, uh, Mr. Morgan, they, the bank presidents have proposed a $10 million loan. And he would be flipping his cards and he would look up and he would say, it's not enough. Flip his cards again. In the early hours of the morning, Morgan marched into the library. The men still had not come to a solution. But Morgan had. He pushed a contract and a pen into the hand of the leader of the trust company presidents. He pointed to the contract and said, here's the place and here's the pen. Completely exhausted and beaten down, the president signed and the others followed. The men agreed to contribute to the $25 million pool to save the weakened trusts. Within days, the economy rallied. Vowing to never let it happen again, and realizing that in a future crisis there was unlikely to be another Morgan, the banking and political leaders devised a plan that resulted in the creation of the Federal Reserve System in 1913. Here's Ron Chernow. Prior to 1913, we did not have a Federal Reserve Board in this country. We had J. Pierpont Morgan. He was like a one-man central bank. On the morning of April 15, 1912, Morgan was scheduled to travel on the ill-fated maiden voyage of the RMS Titanic, but canceled at the last minute 
The White Star Line, which operated Titanic, was part of Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company, and Morgan was to have his own private suite and promenade deck on the ship. In response to the sinking of Titanic, Morgan purportedly said, Monetary losses amount to nothing in life. It is the loss of life that counts. It is that frightful death. On March 31st, 1913, he died in his sleep in a hotel in Rome, just short of his 76th birthday. Thousands of people flocked to St. George's Church for his funeral. As a final tribute, flags on Wall Street flew at half-staff, and in an honor usually reserved for heads of state, the stock market closed for two hours when his body passed through New York City, one of the few times in its history. Morgan's son Jack took control of J.P. Morgan and Company. The firm still exists today. Morgan loved his nation, saving it from economic collapse on more than one occasion. He served on the board of New York's St. Luke's Hospital and volunteered his time and skills to the YMCA. He helped found the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Museum of Natural History. He underwrote three new buildings for Harvard Medical School. J.P. Morgan was a patriot who believed in American exceptionalism. As he optimistically remarked, the man who is a bear on the future of the United States will always go broke. Historian H.W. Brands concluded, he knew railroads as well as William Vanderbilt, Steele as well as Andrew Carnegie, and government finance better than President Grover Cleveland. After Morgan's death, his once bitter rival Theodore Roosevelt summed up Morgan's life. Mr. Morgan was politically opposed to me, yet whenever I was brought into contact with him, I was struck not only by his very great power, but by his sincerity and truthfulness. J. Pierpont Morgan used his integrity and his influence to transform Wall Street at the turn of the century. In the process, he changed America forever. And that is just one great piece of storytelling. And again, go to our website on our This Day in History. And again, we want to focus on the businessmen of this country. Too often it's the sport figures or the entertainment figures or the politicians or the generals. But this space of what America would look like without some of these men. And again, like them or not, good guys, bad guys, what did they do? What made them great? And what did they do for their country? What was their contribution in the end? We did an hour on Ray Kroc. And this guy brought us McDonald's, Levi Strauss, the jeans, Hendrick Meyer, the store, same with Sam Walton, Walmart, Adolph Coors. Well, these are the things that we love in life, too. And we're going to do much more on Mr. Anschutz's book, Out Where the West Begins, and much more in the area of American business and how businessmen built this great country. As always, all of this is brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. They're great online courses. And my goodness, the Constitution 101 is worth it by itself. Ten hours of just superb teaching by one of the best faculties in this country. It's available at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. 
and Our American Stories, Best day, This Days in History, are available at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And just imagine that. He purchased that part in the story where he purchased Carnegie Steel, and he gave him the equivalent of $310 billion and told him to go take a walk, but overnight created a company with a stock value of $1.4 billion. And you can like that, you cannot like that, but that is the backbone, American finance is the backbone of this country. Without financial men, without great banks, like them or not like them. My goodness, we're doing a lot of storytelling about Dodd-Frank, because there are some excesses. But let me tell you, without great financial, financial prowess, without our markets, without the SEC, America is not America. And I also love what was said about this man and what this man said about our country. The man who is a bear on America's future will always go broke. And for all the naysayers who've always said our best days are behind us, nonsense, nonsense. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.